Welcome to the Emergency Medicine Cases Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Anton Hellman, bringing you Canada's brightest minds in emergency medicine from EMC Studios in Toronto. All right, here we go. I've been fortunate enough to help out with organizing the University of Toronto's update in EM conference in Whistler for the last five years now, and I must say that I think this year's conference was the best one yet. There were so many great talks that it was really difficult for me to choose which parts of which talks to use for the podcast, but I ended up deciding on a few practice-changing, or if not practice-changing, then really important topics that I think we ought to know about. This episode will be divided into two parts. In the first part, we'll hear from Dr. Paul Hannum, my friend and old boss as the chief of the ED at Toronto East General, and, ready for this, the captain of the only two-man sailboat for Canada in the 1996 Olympics. I mean, how cool is that? Anyhow, I thought I knew everything there was to know about intraosseous access, but alas, Paul taught me a whole new slew of pearls that he's going to share with you on this podcast. Next up, you'll hear from the head of the divisions of EM at the University of Toronto and the chief of the ED at the University Health Network Hospitals, Anil Chopra, who you might remember from the EM Cases Headache podcast from a few years back. He'll set us straight with CT decision-making when it comes to IV contrast nephropathy. And his friend and colleague, who you all know by now, Dr. Dave Carr, will give us five key things we need to know about antibiotics. In part two, we'll hear from Dr. Joel Yaffe on his favorite EM literature from 2014 and Dr. Chris Hicks on two cardiology game changers when it comes to low-risk chest pain and post-resuscitation care. All right. Let's get going with Paul Hannum on IO-Line Pearls. My interest in intraosseous access started about two years ago after an incident where I was called up to the ICU to come and remove an IO line that we had placed down about an hour ago. And as I went up, the nurses, they were great. They were taking great care of the patient. But what struck me about the situation was they actually said that they had delayed transfer from the emergency department. In fact, they prefer that the patient didn't come up at all because they weren't familiar with this device. They weren't familiar with what to do with it, whether they could use it or not, and most importantly, how to remove it. So two things really struck me. One, we're probably not placing enough of these in the emergency department at the time. And secondly, we need to do a much better job of sharing our knowledge of what we're able to do in the emergency department because one can imagine if a code happens on the floor, for example, or in many other circumstances where it's hard to get an IV, they're probably not doing this. And if nothing else, so if you learn nothing else today and you know everything that I've said and you place these all the time, you might want to consider asking around in your hospital what happens when a code happens on the floor? Or did they know how to use this in the ICU? Or, or just get, make sure people are familiar with it, because I suspect that they're not. So now that we've got a bit of context, Dr. Hannum's going to talk about choosing a site for your IO and some of the advantages and disadvantages of the humeral site versus the tibia site. So the first thing we have to do is choose a site, of course, and we're probably most familiar with the proximal tibia. Just to go over, you're looking for the tibial tubercle. You go two centimeters down and one centimeter medial to that, and you would insert at 90 degrees to the bony plane. We'll have an illustrative image on the blog post and written summary of the most common sites for IO placement. Dr. Hannum's going to talk about how to landmark the humerus site for an IO. So just get ready to try it on yourself as he's describing how to landmark for it. I wanted to talk a little bit about the proximal humerus, though. 
you do get better rates of infusion at the proximal humerus. It essentially drains right into your superior vena cava. It's not difficult to landmark, and if you just put your thumb right on your anterior humerus, you can run it up. As you rotate your arm internally and externally, you'll feel your bicipital groove right at the top of your shoulder. There's a bit of a groove there, and that the bump on the outside, or the lateral bump, is your greater tubercle. Essentially, that's what you're aiming for. Okay, so that's not a difficult thing to find unless you're a bigger person. And so, again, in the right patient, the right scenario, it might be a good place to go. Again, great infusion rates, not that difficult to find. The big thing that I find is a problem, I would say, in a, in a resuscitation is you can't move the arm. So in order to really expose that greater tubercle, you need the uh, arm to be uh, adducted or against the body and internally rotated. So ideally, the arm should be placed right across the abdomen and fixed in that place. Well, that's not quite so simple in a, if you're doing chest compressions or something like that. Do I really know if my arm's going to be internally rotated while all sorts of other crazy stuff is going on? And, and for me, the answer is no. Uh, the reason that happens is because if you, you can imagine if you have your arm in that position, you place a needle in that spot, and you externally rotate, all right, what's going to happen is the bone will obviously rotate, but the skin does not. So you create a big shearing force on that needle, and that shearing force is what's going to pull that needle out. It's not going to work anymore. So just to be aware of those pros and cons, those are the two sites. I, I like to keep things simple, things that I am going to remember at 2 o'clock in the morning. If there's been a fracture in a bone, you obviously can't use that site. If you've already tried a previous attempt in that site, then you've created a hole, so now that bone's going to leak, so you can't use that anymore. If there's obvious trauma or circulatory compromise proximal to the site that you're thinking of using, then you couldn't use that as well. Other than that, go ahead, charge ahead and use that. My own preference, to be honest, I would just use a proximal tibia most of the time. On the other hand, just to be aware, the humerus does have really good rates of infusion. So if you are in a position where you could fix the hand and across the body, then it's actually a reasonable alternative too. So the humerus greater tubercle site has faster rates of infusion than the proximal tibia. However, the major downside is that the arm must be kept in adduction with the forearm across the abdomen to avoid dislodging the needle, rendering the humerus unusable and putting the patient at risk for a compartment syndrome. Any hole in the bone, whether from a failed I.O. insertion attempt, a fracture in the bone, or a dislodged I.O. needle, is a contraindication to using that I.O. site, and you'll need to look elsewhere to place your I.O. The needle length, that can be a bit confusing. The easy I.O. kits that that, uh, we get, they have about three sizes, I think it is, and it's just based on the weight of the patient. So really broad ranges. I think that yellow one is for greater than 45 kilograms, which is most people. I think much more important than the weight of the patient is how much soft tissue is between the skin and the bone, all right? So obviously that's going to be quite different if you choose your humerus versus your proximal tibia, for example. So you can estimate that just by pressing on it, or at least do your best. And like most other times when you're using a needle, if you're not sure, choose the longer one, of course. But obviously you you want to know that you can get that needle down. Again, you're just pushing in. You're not using the drill part until you hit the bone. You're going to push that needle in until you feel that bone, and you want to be sure that you have at least half a centimeter of the, of the needle still showing. Okay, so again, that'll depend on, on the type of patient that you're trying to get access on and obviously the site as well. From there, that's when you're going to use the drill, or in the, in the case of no drill, you just push in, but you want to feel that one give, and uh, the needle going a little bit further. It's about a, a half a centimeter. That's what the marks on the needle are, in fact, and that's, uh, that's why they have those marks. 
If you feel that give go in and you still got some needle showing above the skin, that's okay. Don't worry about it. It doesn't mean that you screwed up. It doesn't mean the needle's too long. It just means you really, really need to stabilize the needle. Okay. You, what you don't want to feel, of course, is one give and then a second give because you've probably gone through and through. In that case, you just got to remove it. And just to be clear, you need to use a whole different limb in that case. Okay. So again, you're going to choose the needle site based on the soft tissue, not the weight of the patient. The weight of the patient is really, to me, not that relevant, actually. I love this point because rather than trying to remember the different weight cutoffs for the different colored needles, you can just eyeball the patient's soft tissue thickness and choose a needle based on that. Once you've actually placed the needle, you need to stabilize it. That's probably the most important thing. If you're skiing and you want to take a picture of someone, you're going to plant your pole and you're going to take off your glove and you're going to put it on the top. If you wiggle that pole at all as you put your glove on the top, it's going to fall down. Okay, Because what happens is, is you made that hole in the snow a little bit too big. It's not going to shrink back up. Again, if you plant your pole and then you wiggle it, it'll just fall down. So it's a good analogy from my perspective for an IO needle. If you wiggle that needle, you've made that hole bigger. It's going to leak. Okay, And that's going to create our biggest problem, which is extravasation. You're going to get a compartment syndrome. So as soon as that needle has gone in, probably the most important thing you can do is stabilize the top of the needle. There are fancy dressings that come with the I.O. kits for making sure that it remains stable. Uh, another alternative would just be a whole bunch of gauze piled up on either side, but you really need to make sure it can't move around. And again, just to get back to that proximal humerus in turn, that's why you, you can't have that arm moving around, because as soon as you dislodge that needle, it's going to leak. It goes without saying that having placed an intraosseous, you're going to have to keep a close eye on the limb, of course. You don't want to see it swelling up. And there are definitely case reports of compartment syndromes and bad things happening after, after placement of, of IO access. So absolutely, it works. It'll get you out of a bind. But uh, you just have to be aware, really, what you're trying to avoid is leaking, okay, just in the simplest possible terms. Now, the next pearl is one that I had no clue about. It's about how fast you flush the I.O. with normal saline? Flush. So flushing, that's the first thing we do. Once you've got your needle placed, you've stabilized it, you're supposed to flush. And we've just disrupted that bony cortex. You've got some little bone fragments. You've got a bunch of blood clot in that uh, marrow as well. So you need to flush that with 10 cc of normal saline. It seems pretty straightforward. It was actually a kind of a neat study done in 2013 where they measured the differences in pressure generated as you did that 10 cc flush. And it differed by about 35 times, interestingly. So this was in, in cadaver, a cadaver study, and they measured the intraosseous pressure. And well, why is that relevant? Well, it's important because we know that if you generate a pressure of greater than 2,000 millimeters of mercury inside a bone, you significantly increase the risk of death as a result of fatty embolism specifically. Okay, we know that from the orthopedic literature and the radiology people for sure. So 2,000 is bad. And if you bang in... 10 cc's of normal saline over a second, you're going to reach pressures of at least 3,000. So that's bad. It's easy to avoid this. You just count to 10 as you're doing that 10 cc flush, and you want your 10 cc's to go in about over 10 seconds. Now, if it's 8 seconds or 7 seconds, there's a stopwatch that says I think it's 8 and a half. 8 to 10 seconds. The point is, you're probably putting in an I.O. when you're nervous, or at least I am because I don't have IV access, I want IV access, it's this person's sick. So you can imagine how you get excited, you just bang it in, and actually that's going to significantly increase your risk of fatty embolism, and that's, that's a big deal. 
Fatty embolism is hard to diagnose. The diagnostic criteria are quite vague. Many of our patients who undergo CPR get fatty embolism, signs of fatty embolism in your lungs anyways. On the other hand, if we know that generating these high pressures from the orthopedic literature is a problem, let's, how about we just don't do that? Just, just go slow. Just put in the flush, but do it over 10 seconds if you can. Finally, don't forget to use a pressure bag. So you will double your rates of infusion if you do use a pressure bag. It seems a bit counterintuitive. I just talked about not generating too much pressure. You do want about 300 millimeters of mercury, which is the pressure bags will help us to do, and you'll get a good rate of flow by using a pressure bag. So, of course, you need to do everything that we've talked about, but if you forget the pressure bag, you'll hang your normal saline, and it'll maybe drip a little bit, but you do need to use a pressure bag. Again, that's 300 millimeters of mercury as opposed to the two to 3,000, which is when you start to run into problems with fatty embolism. And here comes Dr. Hannum's review. So just to review, site selection, consider the proximal humerus. It does work great, and certainly the uh, videos on YouTube are impressive. just drains right into the heart. It's amazing. On the other hand, you do have to be able to immobilize that hand across the abdomen, so that's not totally straightforward. Choose your needle based on the soft tissue thickness at the site that you've chosen. Stabilize the hub, of course, flush over 8 to 10 seconds, and don't forget to use a pressure bag. Now Dr. Hannum's going to answer a couple of questions from the audience. The first one is how to decrease the pain of the IO infusion with lidocaine using the 2-2-2 rule. And the second is how to take the IO out. So lidocaine prior to infusion. Uh, again, my personal preference, I generally use IOs when the person is in extremis. They are painful. There's lots of videos about how putting in the needle is not that painful and people laughing and playing cards while they're having IOs placed. It's not the needle placement, it's the infusion that hurts. It hurts a lot. So yeah, to use twos is the easy way to remember that. So two cc's of 2% lidocaine without preservative. Oh, you have to leave it for two minutes before it's going to start to work. 2%, two cc's of lidocaine for two minutes. Okay. You use the lidocaine, which is on the crash cart, which is the lidocaine without preservative. Uh, just to be clear, to take it out, you any lure lock, that's any syringe, you screw it onto the top, you keep turning, that's clockwise, and you pull it out. It's really that simple. So any syringe, keep twisting, get some motion, and you pull it out. That's how you take out these IO needles. Next up is Dr. Anil Chopra, who's going to talk to us about what we need to know about contrast nephropathy. Who's at risk for it? How to prevent it? and some alternatives to CT with full contrast that we should consider in high-risk patients. Now, I'd like to preempt this talk by reminding you that there's many intra-abdominal emergencies in which there's good evidence in the literature that non-contrast CTs have similar sensitivities and specificities to contrast CTs, appendicitis being a good example. Nonetheless, there's still a handful of diagnoses like mesenteric ischemia, for example, that usually do require a contrast CT to make a definitive diagnosis. And so here's Dr. Chopra's take on contrast nephropathy in the ED. We're going to talk about contrast nephropathy. And the reason I think this is important, I think, is for twofold. One is it guides conversations with your radiologist. I'm sure we've all had conversations where you call up the radiologist. The radiologist says, oh, crap, it's Dr. Chopra. It's his 14th CT rule out PE. All were negative. Moron has no clinical judgment. 
And you're saying, oh, crap, it's Dr. Jones. The guy's on salary. He doesn't want to do any more CTs. I'm going to have to lie to him for every question he asks. So I think it's important for that aspect. And I used to work in a small community center where I used to do the IVPs and contrast at off hours. It would not be surprised some of you are doing that in your center. So you're taking on that medical legal risk. So I thought it would be actually a relatively pertinent talk. So just to be on the same page, we're talking about acute kidney injury unrelated to other things, as best as you know, within a day or three of your injection. And I'm strictly talking about CT contrast, not other stuff, because that's the number two cause of contrast nephropathy related to contrast. And you must have at least a rise of 25% in your serum creatinine, or an absolute rise of 44, so that we can all play by the same rules what we're talking about. So just the definition then of contrast nephropathy, it's at least a rise of 25% in the serum creatinine or an absolute rise of 44 within a few days of receiving IV contrast. So the risk is essentially negligible. You can assume it's zero. That guides your conversation with the radiologist. Unless you have some risk factors age and previous diabetes with nephropathy, heart failure, a low creatinine clearance of 60. And actually, it doesn't take much to get below 60 creatinine clearance. A 60-year-old lady, 60 kilos, 100 creatinine is below 60, where radiologists would begin to wonder whether you should be doing the scan. So it doesn't take much. One of the things I think that's pertinent to emerge these days is if you've had another contrast study within the last either the same ED visit or the day before. I think we're all relatively CT happy, and that's a North American phenomenon, let's so in Europe. I mean, you kind of all know the patient. Somebody comes in feeling unwell. You do a CT head for bleed. That's negative. They come back, and the respirates up. You do a CT chest, rule out PE. That's negative. They come back with belly pain because they're hungry. We do a CT abdomen to rule out ischemic gut. And that you're, you're getting the drift that we tend to do a lot of contrast studies, so that's also a pertinent risk factor. Knowing fully well that the studies are all based on hospitalized patients, like there's very little data if you look in patients who got CT contrast and who got CT without contrast to see what's the baseline rate of creatinine going up. It's actually fairly significant in hospitalized patients, so it's hard to know when you cause the injury when you push that dye. So without any risk factors for contrast nephropathy, we don't have to worry about it so much. And the important risk factors aren't so much age, but the patient's comorbidities, previous kidney dysfunction, diabetes, CHF, and if they've had a CT contrast study done recently. So the risk is about 7%. This is the largest study ever done in the emergency department, 5,006 patients, about 7% when you look for it. These are primarily patients who are actually discharged from the emergency department And the risk factors is none of them would surprise you, except they found age is irrelevant. It's really the comorbidity that makes the difference. So the study that Dr. Chopra is referring to is from Academic Emergency Medicine in 2013 called Risk Factors for Radio Contrast Nephropathy After Emergency Department Contrast Enhanced Computerized Tomography. We'll have that in the written summary and blog post. Do we care about contrast nephropathy. And that's a question I really wanted to know about. So we do care if they go into florid renal failure, their potassium is going up, they stop peeing, and the only thing that they could find on their discharge summary was the eMERGE doc who ordered the CT scan and the radiologist do it. So that would be bad. 
obviously. But the good news is that the vast majority of people, even when you look for it, don't get this condition. When they get this condition, they get better on their own, usually within 72 hours, almost always within a week. Less than 1% of patients end up with dialysis, but when they do, a good proportion of them are dead. A good proportion die within the hospital admission, and 80% or higher are dead within two years. Who knows, because they're sicker patients, we tend to do stuff on. But the relative risk with the contrast that you asked for or you injected versus baseline of killing somebody or causing them to be on dialysis is about 36. So the relative risk is 36. It's not insignificant. So we actually, I think, do care. And we do get these high-risk patients. So diabetes and a low creatinine under 30, you really would need a good reason to do a CT contrast because 12% of them will end up on dialysis because of that test alone. So clearly, most radiologists would, wouldn't do it, or you'd have to have a really great discussion to do it on those patients. But we do know there's some really, really high-risk patients who have this. Again, just to drive home the point, the patients that we really need to worry about are those with risk factors. Diabetes, CHF, and poor renal function are the big ones. Next, Dr. Chopra is going to go through what to do with patients who need a CT with contrast who have renal dysfunction according to three categories of creatinine clearance, under 60, under 45, and under 30. So the three things are, if the creatinine clearance is above 45, we don't care. They don't get into trouble. If it's between 30 to 45, guidelines say do something. That could be give them fluids or something else, maybe use a, a lower amount of contrast, maybe use a non-ionic contrast or a low osmolality, stuff that radiologists are very familiar with. And if creatinine is under 30, you really need to do something. I know this is very complicated, but do something, do something more. So what do we mean? So number one, I think we all, me, you, we do when we have accessibility to CT. Mine's in my eMERGE, 30 feet away, and all I need to do is put it in there during daytime hours. It's never a problem. But I think, you know, the 20-year-old male with right lower quadrant pain, peritoneal signs, doesn't have a, an ovary. I don't think we always need to. I, I realize it's sometimes guided by general surgery and may offer a discussion. The other thing would be do an alternative study. Uh, that could be ultrasound in our hands. Do a non-contrast study. So, for example, many of you, I'm sure, have these high-flutin CT, 9 million slicing CTs that can see anything. And so if you're looking for things like diverticulitis, you generally don't need contrast, even though traditionally radiologists love to have contrast. You don't need to do that. With bowel obstruction, you don't need contrast, though you may not exactly find the cause of the obstruction. So we do have alternatives that we, we just sometimes don't employ them because for me it just becomes, I find the right clinical scenario and it's CT till proven otherwise. If you must do the test, give them fluids. Lots of guidelines. The guidelines are silly, like give them three to 500 cc's. We're eMERGE physicians. We, nothing below a liter will do. So give them a liter. Makes everybody feel better. Give them a liter before and after the study and discuss. And generally, you don't have to discuss, but it's a good conversation. Hey, Dr. J, why don't you use less amount? Use the good stuff, the expensive stuff, because, you know, the patient's at risk. I just want to drive home the practical point here that you need to give fluids not only before the CT with contrast, but after the CT with contrast. And this is something that's really easy to forget about. Ideally, you want to give your patient the saline bolus, send them for the CT, and after they come back, assess their fluid status to make sure they're not volume overloaded, and if not, give them another bolus. 
Next, Dr. Tropa is going to talk about the use of NAC and bicarb in preventing contrast nephropathy. Does anybody else know anything else that helps prevent contrast nephropathy? So NAC is one. Anything else? Bicarb. Okay. So lots of little studies, a couple of meta-analyses, conflicting evidence. I think I'm on safe ground to say that both of them are probably useless in the patients that you have given adequate fluid resuscitation to prior to the contest study. So in that patient that you gave the leader or whatever you like to do, adding those two is probably useless. Now, there is one big study, Cochrane's doing this huge study on NAC. That may answer the question definitely about NAC to prevent it. But you know, the bottom line is it often ends up with hospital protocols. If you've bought into it, it's typically what you're going to end up doing in the patient. You have this nice, we have a nice little algorithm, but apparently many places do, and you'd hate to have this as a fight, as a one-on-one fight for every case that ends up in this thing. So the use of NAC and bicarb to prevent contrast nephropathy is really controversial. When it comes to NAC, there's been several meta-analyses that have reported a relative risk reduction ranging from 0.37 to 0.73, but none of these studies are really that great. I would argue that because there may be some potential benefit to NAC, its cost is basically peanuts, and its safety profile is excellent. So why not give it to patients who you're really worried about that are at risk for contrast nephropathy, but you really need to get that contrast CT? Now, practically speaking, your hospital probably has a protocol that they go by, but nonetheless, this information will help guide you in your conversations with your radiologists on deciding on an individual basis who requires NAC and who doesn't. Next, Dr. Tropa is going to clarify how to deal with the patient who's on metformin who needs a CT with contrast. Metformin only guides a change in management for after you've done the study. So the patient being on metformin who's not pre-existing acidosis, which would be most of our cases, requires no alteration in the study that you order. So you can order CT happily on anybody on metformin. Most radiology departments have a piece of paper. They say, hold your metformin for such and such time. If you feel unwell, if you feel acidotic, go see your family doctor. <laughs> but uh, So other than that, I'm not aware of anything you need to change. And I'm being a little facetious saying there are some patients you would think a little bit more harder on, but metformin is not a consideration. Metformin does not increase your risk of contrast-induced nephropathy. Metformin increases your risk of metabolic acidosis. So the take-home messages for the contrast nephropathy talk are first, worry about the patients who have risk factors. Those patients without risk factors have a very low incidence of contrast-induced nephropathy, and you don't really need to worry about them. The key risk factors are diabetes, renal dysfunction, especially if their creatinine clearance is less than 30 and CHF. Other risk factors that have been listed in the studies are hypertension and anemia. For those patients at risk, the first thing you want to do is see if there's an alternate study that does not require contrast. Next, if you still need that contrast study, give a bolus of normal saline, somewhere between 300 milliliters and a liter, before they go for the CT contrast, and then again after they come back from the CT. And what about NAC or bicarb for preventing contrast-induced nephropathy? While there's no strong evidence that giving NAC or bicarb can prevent contrast-induced nephropathy, it is something you might want to consider in consultation with your radiologist because it may be effective in a subset of patients and there's really no downside to giving it.
Next up, we got Dr. Joel Yaffe, who's going to talk about his favorite literature from 2014. He'll be covering the TRIS trial for transfusions and septic shock. He'll be talking about submassive PEs, TMJ dislocation reduction, a sobering study on the effect of shift work on cognitive performance, and the use of tetracaine in corneal abrasions. We're going to spend a little bit of time today looking at a few articles from 2014 that are relevant to emergency medicine and may or may not have the potential to change practice. And we'll talk about maybe why they should or shouldn't. 2014 was a big year for studies in early goal-directed therapy. I am not going to talk about the process and arise trials, but what they basically said, and they've been pretty publicized, is that if you get somebody in septic shock and you just know how to give fluids and you know how to give antibiotics and you rationally know how to use pressors and monitor the patients clinically and with lactates, you do as well as anybody using fancier invasive monitoring. And I think that's probably what, what most people are doing. So these studies are worth looking at and knowing about, but I want to talk about this one. Uh, this is the TRIS study. So this is a study that looked at hemoglobin levels in septic shock. So previous recommendations for early goal-directed therapy said, you know what, we should have, we should have these people with hematocrits greater than 30, hemoglobin of 90. There has been some suggestion that that's a little high, you don't need to do this. So this was a multicenter study where they looked at ICU patients in septic shock with hemoglobins less than 90, and they uh, randomized them to one of two strategies. One to keep their hemoglobin above 90, one to keep the hemoglobin above 70. Uh, their primary outcome was death at 90 days. And basically, there was no difference in the primary endpoint. There was no difference in any of the secondary endpoints. There was no difference in death. So it looks like, and I think everybody buys into this now, 70 is the new 90. Probably it's one less thing for us to worry about. Uh, if somebody comes in and their hemoglobin is 73 or 74, we don't have to worry about transfusing them it's good enough, and we can worry about all the other stuff that we need to do. Dr. Yaffe addresses a question from the audience about whether this applies to patients with suspected cardiac ischemia. They did have some exclusions for ischemia. There were some criticisms that they might have missed little events, but there were actually no increased cardiac events, uh, no increased stroke, no increased anything. So the take-home message from the TRIST trial is that patients who are in septic shock and have a hemoglobin above 70 generally do not require transfusions. Another study, a little departure will go a little bit easier. So patient presents with a corneal abrasion. You kind of put some anesthetic in their eye. They feel great. You're going to send them home. They ask you for everybody. Anybody ever get asked for those drops on the way out? For sure, right? So the background is that, you know, these things work. We all know that they work, uh, but we've been told that you know, there's some problems, animal studies that say these things can cause problems in corneas. Uh, small studies, case reports, uh, not a good body of evidence. There have been things reported, healing problems, you can get infections, recurrent ulcerations, but these are by and large case reports. So this study, it was done over 12 months, it was a blinded, randomized controlled study, and they got 116 patients, uh, they had corneal abrasions, they didn't include people with contact lenses, so they had to be mechanical trauma, UV exposure, or foreign body removal. They got either topical tetracaine or saline drops, which they were told that they could use every 30 minutes for 24 hours. And they also gave them acetaminophen, and they gave them chloramphenicol drops. There were a whole bunch of exclusions. This is really important if you're going to consider doing this. They did not give this stuff to people with huge corneal abrasions. 
Like these were little abrasions, uh, no contact lens wearers, nothing that smacked of something that might be complicated. So more specifically, the important exclusion criteria in the study were one, that more than 36 hours had passed after their injury. Two, if the patient had previous eye surgery or cataracts. Three, if they were contact lens wearers. Four, if they had injured both eyes. Five, if there was evidence of ocular infection. Six, if there was an obvious grossly contaminated foreign body in their eye. And lastly, if there was an injury requiring urgent ophthoevaluation, like a penetrating eye injury, a large or complicated corneal abrasion, or injuries causing a significant disruption of vision. Their outcomes were, um, it was a safety outcome. So they examined them at 48 hours and then did telephone follow-ups at seven days and one month uh, looking for complications. And their secondary outcomes were related to pain and uh, what the patients said about the stuff. And they concluded that topical tetracaine used for 24 hours is safe. So they didn't find any complications. Few issues with the study. One, there could have been, theoretically with their math, there could have been up to 6% problem. So they weren't powered to detect all the problems. They didn't find any, but it doesn't mean that there wouldn't be any. Uh, The interesting thing was, like we know that when we put this stuff in people's eye, they feel better. But when they had them map out their pain scores for a longer period of time, there was no difference. It just seemed like the global sensation of pain over a long period of time, it didn't make a huge difference. Although they did know that when they put the tetracaine in, it was more effective than putting in saline drops. I think what interested me about the study was the pain drop-off is really, really quickly. It falls off to really low levels in about 12 hours. So these people do not have pain for days. So even if you're going to give the stuff, you could probably give it and say, you know what, use it for six hours, and they should be fine. It doesn't need to be used long-term, number one. Number two, the other message is that, again, in this group with small abrasions, you don't need to give them expensive stuff. Now, anybody use diclofenac drops for abrasions? I mean, it was promoted a while ago. It's expensive, not necessary. I know some people are using it. I guess the other thing is, and this has nothing to do with the study, so this is purely editorial on my part, there's no evidence that you need antibiotic drops. There is zero, and a lot of people don't use them. So these things generally, the ones that they did, do well. The pain goes away quickly, and probably you can keep it cheap if you choose to give a little bit of tetracaine to some people. You can do it, but... I would say tell them to use it for short periods of time and avoid giving expensive stuff and let them save their money for beer. So the take-home messages from this one are consider giving a short course of tetracaine, maybe 6 to 12 hours in patients with small abrasions. Make sure you're selective and know the exclusion criteria. And also, Dr. Yaffe, just wanted to remind you that there's really zero evidence for giving antibiotics in patients with small abrasions, and giving anti-inflammatories like diclofenac drops is not only expensive, but probably doesn't help very much. Next, Dr. Yaffe is going to talk about the controversial topic of treating submassive PEs with thrombolysis. So you get a 54-year-old who comes in with chest pain, has a diagnosed pulmonary embolus, has an elevated troponin, and has some RV dysfunction on their echo or maybe on their CT. 
but is otherwise well. So there's some background here. The 2011 AHA guidelines talked about fibrinolysis and submassive PE and said, you know what, if they've got a little bit of elevation of troponin or RV dysfunction, don't lyse them. But if they start to go down the tubes, then you should consider lysing them. The uh, CHESS guidelines in 2012 again said, probably not routinely, but there is a group that if they're not doing well, and I'm not sure how you define them, uh, you might want to consider it. So, so the feeling was, Let's not go in and lyse these people right away, but some of them you might want to consider lysing them even if they're not in shock. The MOPA trial came out in uh, 2012. It was a very different study. It didn't look at troponins. It didn't look at RV function. It looked at clot burden on CTs, and it, and it just looked at pulmonary hypertension in, in six months. And um, they came out, and uh, it was heavily endorsed by uh, EM Crit, said we should all be lysing these patients. And... The chess people um, said, well, it's not that simple. And this, these articles came out in, at the beginning of 2012, and there was a pro and con about lysis for, for submassive PEs. And even the pro people said, there may be some people, but we shouldn't just be doing it based on a troponin and an RV function on, a, on an imaging test. And they knew what was coming down the pipes, and what was coming down the pipes was the Pytho study, and Pytho is the Greek goddess of seductive persuasion. So, um, so uh, the Pytho study was a, a really big study, good study. They looked at people who were greater than 18. Uh, they had PEs, and they had both an elevated troponin and RV dysfunction. They excluded people who had high levels of blood pressure. It was a randomized double-blind trial. They gave them a bolus of tenecteplase, or they gave them placebo and they started them all on unfractionated heparin. Their primary endpoint was death or hemodynamic decompensation at seven days. They had a bunch of secondary endpoints, and they had some safety outcomes, which included bleeding and stroke. And what they found was, if they did lyse these people, there actually was a benefit in the combined endpoint of death or hemodynamic decompensation. But the but is that really, the difference was in hemodynamic decompensation and not in deaths. And uh, what they actually did in these people was, in the group that was randomized to placebo, if they actually started to get worse, they gave them lytics. So all of the effects of lytics, the bad effects, were actually factored into the safety analysis. And at the end of the day, what they found was that at day seven, there was no difference in deaths. But there was very significant difference in major um, extracranial bleeding and in stroke and big differences in hemorrhagic stroke. So the number needed to harm was about 14. And the authors said, you know what? If you have an intermediate risk PE, hold the lysis. Save the lytics for the patient in shock. And if you're going to do fibrinolysis in stable people, exercise great caution. I think they felt, you know, there's not enough here to warrant this at this time. There was another study that came out in the same year. It was a, a meta-analysis. It wasn't a systematic review. They had a kind of a quite a range of studies. Some people really liked it. This was a Chatterjee study. They did find a bit of a mortality difference. And they found that maybe in people under 65, you could kind of do this safely without causing harm, but it wasn't really powerful enough to make that recommendation. And they had a significant bleeding rate. So... We come to the uh, 2014 ESC guidelines. These are the European guidelines, which included all of this stuff. And what they said is, we should reperfuse people who are in shock. 
and we should give them heparin. So this was their categorical recommendation. They said, look, if you have both of these things, if you've got elevated tropes and RV dysfunction, if you've got them both, you shouldn't routinely lyse them, but you should watch them carefully. These aren't, these people aren't going home, right? This is not outpatient management. You're going to watch them carefully and you're going to be ready to lyse them or do something advanced uh, if they go down the tubes. And the something advanced might be calling your interventionalist because people are looking at catheter-directed treatments. So um, this is the take-home point, I think. Save the thrombolytics for the unstable patients. Watch the high-risk patients carefully. And high-risk is if they've got elevations in both. And be prepared to give some kind of rescue therapy. And the future is going to be in kind of really nailing down who are the people that are truly at high risk of a bad outcome. And who are the people who are at low risk of bleeding? And you're going to see all kinds of stuff. So Dr. Yaffe's take-home message for thrombolysis in submassive PE, that is those with evidence of right ventricular dysfunction and a positive troponin, is save the thrombolysis for unstable patients, those patients who are in shock. And watch the high-risk patients who aren't in shock very carefully and be prepared to give rescue fibrinolysis or another advanced therapy if they go down the tubes. Next, Dr. Yaffe is going to talk about the possible dangers of prescribing sulfamethoxazole trimethoprim, Ceptra in Canada or Bactrim in the United States, in people who are on ACE inhibitors or ARBs. 75-year-old woman comes in, has hypertension, they're on ramipril, and they have some dysuria. History of UTIs, last organism was resistant to uh, Cipro, so you decide to give them Ceptra. Uh, so this was an article that looked at cotrimoxazole and the risk of sudden death in people who are on ARBs or ACE inhibitors. And um, this is a group in Toronto out of ISIS who's published a lot of stuff on this. They look at the the databases from the Ontario government, because everybody over 65 gets their medications paid for. So they have this huge number of patients, and they crunch these numbers looking for associations. So in this case, they, they kind of had some background data that said, you know what, that there was an association uh, between uh, use of ACE inhibitors and ARBs and hyperkalemia. And uh, they wanted to see whether this translated into death. So they went through these databases, these huge databases, and they tried to correct for all kinds of confounding variables, and they compared it with the use of other antibiotics. And they had 1.6 million patients, right? So huge numbers of patients. And what they found was um, Ceptris seemed to have an increased risk of death associated with it if it was given to people who are on ARBs and ACE inhibitors. And they postulated that this was there was some unrecognized hyperkalemia. I put this up here not to tell you never to use Ceptra in people on ACE or in ARBs, although uh, it might be somebody who you want to look at their potassium first. I put this up here to tell you that there's a lot of studies like this. In the community, there's a lot of questions about what do we make of these studies that use huge databases to look for associations? Are they real? Is there something there? I think that there is something to this kind of stuff. I think you have to use it with a grain of salt. I think we can use it to kind of, if we have another drug to use. So maybe if you're using Ceptra, and we may be using more of it now that we're using it to treat MRSA stuff, 
Um, you might want to be careful in people who are on ARBs or ACE inhibitors. But this, this kind of data may be the only way to get clinical stuff on drug interactions. And my plug would be, has anybody in this room ever reported a drug interaction or side effect to the Canadian government? One. Good man. You know, this is something we're not doing. And this is why kind of the, the researchers have to try to dredge this stuff out. So if you've got a patient on ACE inhibitors or ARBs who you're thinking of giving sulfamethoxazole trimethoprim, that's Bactrim or Septra, you might want to avoid it altogether and choose a different antibiotic if you can. And if you're stuck having to use Septra, make sure you check their potassium, because if it's high, those people may be at risk for sudden death. How many people here have reduced a TMJ? So everybody's done it. Okay, how many people do this with procedural sedation? How many people do it without procedural sedation? This is something that you can probably do without procedural sedation. Other people have said this before. It's nothing new. But what these guys had was a, an interesting technique. So it was a couple of hospitals. They got about 31 patients over a long period of time, so they weren't seeing huge numbers. And they did a technique where they had the patient put either a 5 or a 10 cc 5 or 10 cc syringe, that is. In their mouth on the side of the dislocation. Person's biting on it. They rotate it. So if it's on the left, it's going to be counterclockwise. And if it's on the right, it's going to be clockwise. So the idea is that the bottom one is actually, they're biting on it and it's pushing the bottom one back. And it reduces it. So just to clarify that, They're using the posterior molars on the side of the dislocation, and the patient bites down on a 5 or 10 cc syringe, and they rotate the syringe to push the lower molars posteriorly, that is clockwise on the right or counterclockwise on the left. We'll have an image of this on the written summary in the blog post, but for now, just try and imagine biting down on the syringe yourself and how it works, just to help reinforce it for you. Their numbers were really good. Like their numbers were, you know, in two minutes, everybody was back. If you can do it easily without sedation, without kind of jumping on the person and putting your fingers in their mouth, uh, and it's low tech and quick. So I was convinced, again, a low stress, low risk procedure that you can do. And if it, worst thing that happens, if it doesn't work, you go back to plan B. And now for Dr. Yaffe's last study, which is about shift work and cognitive decline with shift work. How many people in the room do shift work? Okay. How many people in the room have been doing shift work for more than five years? More than 10 years? Okay, you're all in trouble. This was a study that looked on uh, the effect of shift work on cognition. It was a study done in France from a group of people that had occupational medicine practices. And they looked at a bunch of uh, employed and retired workers. They did kind of measures of speed and memory at various times. They looked at their ages and they looked at whether they had done shift work at any time. Uh, They corrected all their data for every confounding variable they thought they could find. And what they found was that an exposure to shift work was associated with a chronic impairment of cognition. It was highly significant if you had been doing it for 10 years or more. So those of us who've been doing this for more than 10 years, things are looking bleak. But the good thing is that Five years after you stop, so maybe you should stop five years before you really want to have some fun, because five years after you stop, you can be back to normal again. It's interesting. I think our life has improved. Our shift work life has improved, and we try to continue to make it better. But it is interesting that it's not without its tolls. 
And now for Dr. Yaffe's take-home messages. I'm just going to wrap it up now. We'll give you the wrap-up. But basically, PEs, despite what some people might be saying, I think the prevailing conservative attitude is don't be licensing people just because they've got elevated uh, tropes, but be ready to do so if they get worse. For septic shock, it's fluids, antibiotics, pressors appropriately. Hemoglobin of 70 is fine. Tetracaine for corneal abrasions, it's probably safe. But you've got to be judicious and just remember that the study, they use it on real simple people. And the patient shouldn't need to use it for very long. Report drug interactions if you get a chance. You know, if a few people do it, that's fine. But association studies are going to be more out there. Uh, TMJ reductions, probably no matter what you do, they probably do not need procedural sedation. And then uh, there was something I said about shift work. I can't remember what it was. But it's, <laughs> thank you very much. a couple of quick announcements before we go. I'm really excited to announce that soon we will be launching EM Cases Digest. These will be ebooks or more like magazines actually. We're calling it the Magazine Series for Enhanced EM Learning. Our EM Cases team has been working diligently over the past year on these ebooks. The plan is that over the next three years, we're going to release eight free open access medical education ebooks. That will cover the eight pillars of emergency medicine designed specifically to maximize your EM learning. Each ebook will contain cases, Q&As, pearls and pitfalls, updates, images, videos, links to top-notch resources and references drawn from the library of more than 100 EM cases podcasts to date. So I really hope you can get a chance to take a look at them. They'll be on the website in a few weeks. And in part two of the highlights of the update in emergency medicine conference from Whistler, we'll have Dr. David Carr talking about some pearls and pitfalls with antibiotics, and we'll have Dr. Chris Hicks talking about some key cardiology game changers. And finally, I hope to see you all at North York General's emergency medicine update conference. We're going to have Scott Weingart, Amal Matu, Stuart Swadron, Walter Himmel, and many other EM cases guest experts will be there. So until next time, take it easy.